You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I am Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department, and it's my pleasure this evening to introduce you to our featured guest of the Writers Live series, um, Mr. Milt Diggins. Diggins is a public historian, independent scholar, researcher, and lecturer who moved to Cecil County, Maryland in 1970. After active duty in the United States Navy Reserve, he taught in the Cecil County Public Schools system for 32 years, teaching social studies and history for most of his career. Milt also taught several social studies-related courses as adjunct faculty at Cecil Community College in the early 1990s. He is a former editor of the Cecil Historical Journal and a frequent contributor to local publications. This evening, he will discuss his latest work, Sealing Freedom, along the Mason-Dixon line, Thomas McCreary, the notorious slave catcher from Maryland. Please join me in welcoming Milt Diggins to the Pratt Library. Uh, stealing freedom along the Mason-Dixon line, Thomas McCreary, the notorious slave catcher from Maryland. Now, if you notice, his location was in Elkton. You have, the, of course, the Mason-Dixon lines dividing Maryland and Pennsylvania, but also notice that you have Delaware, which is also part of the Mason-Dixon line. We don't always think of that. Um, and even though Delaware was a slave state, McCreary's going to be active in several incidents in Delaware and Pennsylvania. Oh, the other thing to notice, well, I'll get more into it. Frederick Douglass, I hold him personally responsible for spending seven years of research, digging in and finding out who in the world is Thomas McCreary, because Frederick Douglass referred to Thomas McCreary, the uh, infamous kidnapper from Elkton. Well, I looked around, I asked around, I was at the Historical Society of Cecil County where I was a volunteer editor, nobody ever heard of him. So I figured, well, why would Frederick Douglass know of this person and nobody in, in the area now knows of him? And I started digging, spent seven years of research, and found that actually he was quite significant in his, de- in his time. He had been nearly forgotten, but... He turned out to be a significant actor in the heated debate over slave catching and kidnapping prior to the Civil War, about a decade before the Civil War. McCreary and his community contributed to the growing animosity between Maryland and Pennsylvania over the issue of slave catching and kidnapping and the underlying institution of slavery. He also aroused anger and fear in the slave state of Delaware. I found him significant for a number of reasons, and just to to go through it quickly. Um, He 
both him and his community, and I include the community because there are a number of things that relate it to the community as well. I noticed, I looked at individual and community responses to abductions to slave catchers and kidnappers. In Pennsylvania, it turns out various communities would react to these abductions, these so-called arrests, and I, I found that significant of, and of interest to how the various communities responded. The network of Quakers, there was a network of Quakers in Baltimore that assisted Quakers in Pennsylvania who were also anti-slavery, who evidently were communicating among themselves to try to rescue um, kidnapped victims when they showed up at the slave markets in Baltimore. I also the book I got into the methods used by slave catchers, kidnappers, and slave dealers. I found it of interest of the support that McCurry received from his community and Maryland's political leaders. The support that McCurry got from the political leaders of Maryland turned out to be a very significant part of this story. Um, the political, Maryland political leaders would resort to Machiavellian maneuvers to protect McCurry. I also found some connections between Philadelphia's most notorious slave catcher, um, Albert F. Alberti, I mean uh, George F. Alberti, and several slaveholders in, in Cecil County who had hired him to locate some of their former enslaved. Um, The accused fugitives from Cecil County and Philadelphia's first two trials under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. They were from Cecil County, as it turned out. Um, I just came across how the efforts of blacks and whites working together, um, a large majority of McCreary's victims and Woodby victims regained their freedom, either because... African-Americans themselves, the would-be victims, were able to um, fight back at, uh, um, in some cases, in a few cases, or relatives of these intended victims were able to intercede. And I found that white and black members of communities would respond to some of these abductions. And those stories were rather significant. Uh, McCreary's location in Elkton gave him an advantage as a slave catcher kidnapper because he was right near the border with Delaware and he was right near the border of Pennsylvania. Um, McCreary was mentioned during the Christiana trial as an example of the slave catchers and kidnappers causing problems along the border and making self-defense leagues necessary. African Americans along the Pennsylvania border on the Pennsylvania side of the border were being overran with kidnappers and, and slave catchers, and it was hard to tell the difference between the two, and it really didn't matter because they were taking freedom from people. And this was a concern, and African Americans would form self-defense leagues on the other side of the, uh, along the, of the Pennsylvania border. Um, and anti-slavery advocates struggled to achieve social justice for kidnapped victims and accused fugitives. Now, what really helps to understand the significance of McCurry is to look at the location. You have Philadelphia, a major refuge for 
freedom seekers, those who have tried to, uh, tried to escape from slavery, would head for Phil a number of them headed for Philadelphia, where they were able to connect with networks that were assisting them. 50 miles in the other direction from Elkton, you have Baltimore, the busiest slave market in the, um, in the region. Uh, Delaware, even though Delaware is a slave state, did not have a slave market if they didn't allow exporting of slaves on a large scale. So Baltimore was, the, um, was a major um, slave exporting state where um, a number of them were sent to New Orleans and other ports south. Um, you have Wilmington, and in Wilmington you have Thomas Garrett and other Underground Railroad um, operatives. And then Cecil County is a midpoint. So it was an ideal location for a kidnapper and slave catcher like McCreary. Also, what made this so explosive was the mix. You have abolitionists and anti-slavery advocates. You have slaveholders and pro-slavery advocates. You have freedom seekers, slave catchers, informers, kidnappers, kidnapped victims, free blacks, self-defense leagues, the enslaved, slave dealers, and you have regular citizens pulled into events. And with all this mix between um, within this region, you are bound to have these types of problems. Uh, conflicting views and, and outbreak of violence. Now, most of McCurry's activities were in Chester County, just across the line from Cecil. Um, most of the incidents where those dots are were areas where he made questionable arrests. And I put quotes around the word arrest because he never bothered with due process. And I'll get more into that in a moment. And... Um, there were also a couple incidents related to the community in, Bal in Philadelphia and also a number of incidents in Baltimore, including some trials, trials in Philadelphia and in Baltimore, and there are a couple incidents in Delaware. Now, that's uh, taking the first example. Downingtown, 1848, an Elkton gang seizes an apparent fugitive slave living and working as a servant in the home of Zebuline Thomas. What had happened is early in the morning before daylight, this gang of kidnappers, of which McCreary apparently was, was a member of this Elkton gang, went around the back of this house, busted through the door. They knew exactly where to go because there had been an informant. Somebody had told them that this individual that owned this house was active at the Underground Railroad. He had a couple servants working for him who were um, evidently, uh, had worked for him for about a year. Um, the kidnappers, or the, the intruders, go upstairs to the garret. They bust through the door. They, the mother is awake, she's, and she's able to evade. But the 16 year, a 16-year-old girl is, is asleep. They pick her up. She starts screaming. This, this big brood is already suddenly, stranger has lifted her up, taking her down the steps. Um, there's a commotion in the household when, when the homeowner's daughters scream. They see what's going on. The homeowner goes rushing out from his bedroom and tries to intercede. And one of the gang members puts a gun to his head and says, you interfere and we will blow your brains out. And they 
take the girl outside, they throw her in a carriage, and they head straight to the Maryland line. Not to a judge, but to the Maryland line. Now, the question is, is this an arrest or is this a kidnapping? Now, how many would say this is an arrest? Nobody. How many would say it's a kidnapping? Okay. That's, but most people on Maryland's side of the line would have disagreed with you vehemently. Pennsylvanians, the editor of the Pennsylvania newspaper said, yes, of course it's a kidnapping. They didn't, they didn't present a warrant. They invade the home in the early morning hours. The occupants are terrorized. The life of the homeowner is threatened. 16-year-old girl is abducted. And they do not go before a judge to support the claim. An obvious kidnapping. However, on the Maryland side of the border, it's not the way they looked at it. Cecil Wig, editor, blamed Pennsylvania for the gang's actions. The law-defying spirit of the citizens and authorities of that state have made it almost, if not entirely, impossible to bring a slave from Pennsylvania. As they have substantially legalized the decoying of slaves away, the arresting of them by force will be sustained. Let Pennsylvania ponder, and instead of idly ranting, take proper steps to remedy evils for which they're responsible. In other words, Maryland's complaining, you're making it too difficult for us to recover our, our... fugitive slaves, and we want Pennsylvania to be more cooperative and, and these, these Quakers and these abolitionists that are interfering and these authorities who are passing laws making it difficult for us to, to recapture slaves. It's Pennsylvania's fault. If they cooperated more, we wouldn't have to resort to these methods. So the point of contention between Pennsylvania's position, Pennsylvania said, okay, we recognize slave catching is legal. Constitution approves of slave catching. People from Maryland are coming to recover their property, but we would expect them to follow due process. We would expect them to go see a judge, give, present the claim. We would want to see a warrant. We would want to see civilized behavior when they approach a homeowner. As for kidnapping, it's a seizing of an accused fugitive or free citizen and removing that person from the state without due process. As for Maryland authorities, however, they didn't see it that way. Slave catching in another state is a constitutional right, period. In a ruling in Prigg versus Pennsylvania in 1842, the Supreme Court ruled that a slaveholder or his agent had every right to go into another state and without hindrance recover their property, period. Um, as for kidnapping, eh, it kind of depends on the situation. We'll look at it. We'll decide whether or not we think it's kidnapping. Now, from 1848 to 1851, Thomas McCree seized at least nine people in Pennsylvania and Delaware. Merrily considered the Pennsylvania incidents legal arrest and ignored the Delaware incidents, as did Delaware. And as I will, too, in the order of if for the sake of brevity, there were several incidents in Delaware, but I'm not going to be going into this. And protected McCreary is a valued slave catcher. Pennsylvania's governors questioned his methods of arrest and requested his extradition three times for obvious kidnappings. So from Pennsylvania's perspective, McCreary may be a villainous, it seems to be a villainous kidnapper, 
And we want to have a trial to determine, once and for all, that he's kidnapping citizens of Pennsylvania. Maryland, on the other hand, is saying, whoa, we're talking about a bold defender of Maryland property rights. How dare you accuse him of kidnapping? He's recovering Maryland property. Um, kidnappers exploited this murky area between what a kidnapper is and what a, what a slave catcher is. Um, kidnappers um, were too concerned about legal distinctions. McCreary wasn't too concerned about whether or not he was kidnapping or, or slave catching. Um, his methods showed that he didn't particularly, wasn't too, too concerned. And the fact that there were some several cases where it was quite obvious that he had grabbed free blacks and rushed them across the state line. And he was an outright kidnapper. Now, just to give you one example, and he's starting with some examples here. The kidnapping of Henry Lee Brown. It was in Downingtown, the same place as the other incident I mentioned. Henry Lee Brown was a, had been working for an employer, and he was a free black in Pennsylvania. He was about 17 years old, and there were two people, black-white team, who tried to convince him to go to Philadelphia for a job. If you've seen uh, 12 Years a Slave, you know the, tr the trick. Oh, we got a great job for you in Philadelphia. Come on to Philadelphia. They persuade him to come to Philadelphia. It's a bait and switch. Once he gets to Philadelphia, they say, oh, actually, it's my uncle in Wilmington who needs a coach driver. Well, you're a 17-year-old coach driver. Sounds like pretty, a lot nicer job than working in a field as a farmer or farming. Um, but for some reason, when they get on the train, they start, even before they get out of Philadelphia, brown balks. And he said, no, no, wait, I don't want to go. And he gets off the train at another station in Philadelphia. Why he balked isn't clear. But it may have been that he had second thoughts about going into, the slave, back into a slave state. Um, or that something suspicious about these guys. So these two tried to persuade him, and then two more people show up, one of which was Thomas McCreary. Thomas McCreary tries to control him in the going, and when that doesn't work, he pulls out a gun and says, you're gone. And they get, the train goes through Wilmington. They don't, they don't get off in Wilmington. They head straight to Baltimore. Henry Lee Brown is sole, or you know, the slave dealer. Slave dealers in Baltimore were working both sides of the line. They had to look like they were legal or they were out of business. They had to look like they were following the law. But when they could get away with otherwise, they, well, like I said, they're duplicitous. They're working both sides of the line. They're doing whatever they can illegally without getting caught for it. Well, in Brown's case, usually when, when somebody protests they're free, they get ignored. But Brown was able to be persuasive enough that the slave dealer was saying, well, I better not take a chance on this one. This is, he sounds very convincing. So he wrote to the employer in Pennsylvania. The employer immediately writes back saying, yes, he's a free black, he's a free citizen. He, he had worked for me, and he came down to Baltimore and made sure that he was freed and brought, brought him back to Pennsylvania. The two men that originally um, lured him to Philadelphia were 
convicted of kidnapping and imprisoned. Thomas McCreary is back in Maryland, and he's planning his next kidnapping. In, in the meantime, um, Pennsylvania decides they want McCreary extradited and held for trial for kidnapping. Well, while that paperwork, so to speak, while that was, that was going through, the situation gets a little complicated. There's another incident. McCreary is planning his next, his next arrest, quote, unquote. Home invasion at midnight, a tenant cabin. The McCreary and the gang, his gang come up, they grab a log, they ram through the door, it's at midnight, they go over to the bed, they pull um, Tom Mitchell out of bed. His wife is, is, is upset, obviously. She's grabbing at, at her husband, trying to keep him from being pulled away. Uh, they, again, they use the line, they put, a, um, they put a gun to her head and say, we'll blow your brains out if you're, you're interfering. This seemed to be one of the favorite lines for kidnappers and slave catchers. And then when she didn't quiet down enough and she's sobbing, one of the guys pins her to a wall at her throat and, and starts choking her to get her quieter. He, she, she survives it. She falls to the floor. And she's, she's obviously very upset, um, sobbing. And, and, and um, they take, the gang takes Mitchell, dumps him into a carriage, and they head for the Maryland state line. They do not go before a judge. They didn't present a warrant. They don't go before a judge. They head straight for Baltimore. In the meantime, Mitchell is purchased by the supposed owner by, by McCreary while on the run. Now here's how this works. You have a claim that's questionable as a slaveholder, where you claim to be the supposed slaveholder. The kidnapper says, or the, the other, the agent says, okay, I got him. I'll buy him from you. The supposed slave owner provides him with a bill of sale. He goes to the slave dealer in Baltimore, and the slave dealer says, can you prove this is your slave? And he says, yeah, I have a bill of sale right here. The slave dealer isn't expected to go check for other paperwork. That bill of sale is all he needs to be legally covered, and that's why they would buy them on this term of buy them on a run. Now, several, and, and it's going to be up to whether or not the white community is going to respond. Now, let me explain why. There's a state law in Maryland. If you are a free black, and you cross into Maryland from Delaware or Pennsylvania without permission, there's a law saying you're going to jail. You're going to be fined. If we catch you a second time, you're going to be fined even more. And if, you don't get, if you're not able to pay it, bye-bye. We're on the auction block. We're headed, you're, you're being sold, and you're, you're a lifetime slave all of a sudden. So it was up to whether or not, so even though African Americans may have won it, to help rescue, it was danger too dangerous. They had to 
So it was up to whether or not the white community would respond. And, and it left, sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't. In this case, they did. And in several cases with McCurry, they did respond. A couple people rushed to Baltimore and a couple headed to Wilmington. The ones in Wilmington alerted Garrett. He telegraphed down to Baltimore saying to watch for him. Again, the Quaker contacts in Baltimore that I'd mentioned um, before, these Quaker contacts then um, tried, to, tried to interfere, but it, they weren't able to. The authorities wouldn't allow them. Not only that, but um, Mitchell's employer, George Martin, he gets arrested because the supposed owner, original owner is saying, well, he stole this labor from me. He owes me the money for the labor. But fortunately, the judge in this particular case looked at the law and followed the law and said, no, we, that suit has to be filed in Pennsylvania. Um, it was a hostile crowd that was watching them when they came down to Baltimore. Um, but they were able to save Mitchell. The community raised the money. Now, anybody in the community could have donated. And, and it, like with the uh, girl, which I did, the 16-year-old girl, which I forgot to mention, her, she was found in Baltimore by, this Quaker, by Quaker Network as well. And her freedom had been purchased. And in this case, uh, Mitchell's freedom had been purchased by community members. Then the community held an indignation meeting to complain about these fugitive slave laws and how it had been allowing this flood of, of kidnappers and, and slave catchers to come in and terrorize their communities. And they thought these laws were terrible, should be done away with, that they were inhumane and cruel. So um, the community, and Mitchell was at, at the meeting and he was given a chance to speak. So some of them were talking about having uh, McCreary arrested and indicted. Um, though the neighbors raised the money to buy Tom's freedom, <clears throat> one local resident felt he was as likely to be kidnapped again as ever. For I do not believe any of them is safe. There is a great many would steal a Negro for $600 rather than go to work, provided the law did not get a hold of them. So again, it's, it's another case of a controversial arrest. Um, it's a home invasion at midnight, no warrant, conflicting claim. Oops, I'm going into the wrong direction, sorry. All right, now the request for the kidnap for information on McCurry. As you recall, there was an extradition request for McCurry's actions in kidnapping Brown. Well, the word gets to the... Um, clerk of the court in Cecil County. Finally, the governor wants some information. Well, the clerk of the court is a little confused as to whether or not he's referring to the Brown case or the Mitchell case. The Mitchell case is ambiguous. It's, um, the Brown case was pretty clearly kidnapping. But he responds as though he, he thought it was Unionville. Now, this clerk of the court is not just an ordinary citizen. He has ties to the governor. He's a political ally of the governor. He before he became clerk of the court in Cecil County, he had just finished working with the governor as his secretary of state. So he had that advantage, that political advantage. He addresses it as though it was the Mitchell case. He says, well, he had the constitutional right. Holiday, um, 
Holiday defends McCurry's actions at Unionville rather than Philadelphia and says McCurry is guilty of no offense recognized by the Constitution and laws of the United States. Holiday declares, declares McCurry almost invaluable to the slaveholders of the state in the arrest of runaways. Now, get this at the State House. The letters are delivered by Thomas McCurry. Holiday has McCurry go down and present these letters to the governor. So, of course, McCurry gets to tell his side of the story. Is Brown going to get to tell his side of the story? No. Um, but McCurry sure does. And also, in the letter, Holiday added a postscript to the letter. McCurry has for years been active in the arrest of runaways, and the abolitionists have heaped an unlimited amount of abuse on his head. This whole presentation has been gotten up for his destruction. I am sure the governor, if he can consistently um, do so, will not grant the warrant for surrender. Were it granted, I believe it could not, um, I do not believe it could be executed at this place. That was an unnecessary addition because Holiday knew exactly how the governor felt. Governor didn't have to wait for McCreary to go back to Elkton to try to arrest him. McCreary's standing right there in front of him. He wanted him arrested, he would have done so. He didn't want him arrested because Governor Philip Thomas was an outspoken advocate for the right of slave catchers to work freely without interference. And he was already in a... In a he was angry with Pennsylvania about another incident over where a slave catcher had been jailed for um, kidnapping, and he didn't think he should be jailed for kidnapping. He felt he was a legitimate slave catcher. And then there was a case in New York that also had, where a judge ruled in favor of a fugitive, of accused fugitive, and um, the governor was not happy with that. Then in 1849, McCreary is assisted by Maryland law and kidnaps John Jackson, a free black teenager lured from Pennsylvania by another case of a bogus job offer. As I had mentioned before, if you enter Maryland and you're a non-resident African-American entering Maryland, you can be arrested and fined. Well, Jackson came into Maryland, was lured into Maryland, McCreary arrests him. McCreary gets the fine. First fine is twenty dollars. Um, the Philadelphia, I mean, the Pennsylvania Abolitionist Society sent down a representative who paid paid the fine and got Jackson released. But the story takes a strange twist. Jackson is lured back again, even though Lindsay, the guy who came down to pay his fine, warns him. This time, the fine is five hundred dollars. Um, Jackson is desperately poor. He had enough trouble with the 20. He's No way he's going to have with the, with the 500. Now, the person who makes the arrest gets half, well, first of all, Jackson's put on the auction block, sold as a slave for life. Now, the person who makes the arrest gets half the proceeds. McCreary made the arrest. McCreary turns around and buys Jackson at a 50% discount, if you can think of in terms of, of a discount for purchasing a human being. 
he gets them at a 50% discount. He takes them down to Baltimore, I mean, yeah, and they, yeah, he takes them down to Baltimore, the slave market, sells them into the slave market at full price. And Marilyn Lowell was, helped him. Later on, when there's going to be an important trial that I'll be talking about in a moment, this incident's going to be brought up, as well as the fact that the governor had refused to extradite McCurry earlier. The other thing I found, because of McCurry's location, and he's working with different gangs, it looks like McCurry may have been an intermediary uh, for kidnappers, slave catchers who are working in southeast Pennsylvania and Delaware, who were coming, the first train station they would come into, if they used train, was in Elkton. McCurry was, that was McCurry's favorite hangout. McCurry seemed to be an intermediary who would then be familiar with the Baltimore slave markets and then would take, help take them on down to the Baltimore slave market. Now things change a bit in 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. The southern states demanded stricter slave enforcement, uh, Fugitive Slave Act enforcement. And the federal government, because of these earlier constitutional rulings, took a more active role. Now federal judges and commissioners would rule on, um, on these fugitive slave cases. The claimants were required, and this is again an important point, the claimants are required to take the accused before federal, a federal judge or commissioner. They can ask for federal assistance. Pretty much there are a number of features that, that stacked the deck against an accused fugitive and made it easier for a slaveholder to, to recover. But it did stipulate a trial, a federal trial, uh, before a federal judge or commissioner. And the first two cases in Philadelphia were out of Cecil, and they didn't turn out the way people expected. One who was, was accused of being in a will, well, I looked up the will myself, and no. But fortunately, the judge in that case was a real stickler for following the law, and he had thrown out the trial saying he, he didn't accept the will, the bogus will that was presented. He didn't, think, he didn't think it was quite right. He didn't know it was bogus, but it, something about it just didn't seem right, and he didn't care for the testimony. So he made the right call when he released um, Henry Garnett. In the other case, this person was accused of being somebody else, and then when he was taken down to Cecil County, um, and the, the supposed slave owner saw him. This, um, the slave owner looked at him and said, this is not my slave. Um, this is Adam Gibson. Uh, how he got his freedom, I do not know, but he's not my slave. Um, Adam Gibson was the name of the person, of, of the right, of the, of the person who was accused of being em uh, somebody named Emery Rice, but he was not, um, the slaveholder recognized that it wasn't, or said it was not um, his slave. People who were in support of the Fugitive Slave Act said, well, that proves that the Federal Fugitive Slave Act works. I mean, he got freed, and people, and the critics of it said that, no, um, because you're depending on the honesty of the slaveholder, not the law itself. The law didn't do the right thing. It wasn't the law that freedom. 
It was the honesty of one, and it should not depend on the honesty, individual honesty. It's the law itself was a problem. The commissioner had rushed the trial and didn't, and didn't allow uh, Gibson to have a really fair hearing. It was more of a political trial. Now, there's an incident at a small town in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's, on the, it's in Lancaster County near the border of Chester County. A Baltimore County slaveholder by the name of Gorsuch goes up to, he gets word that a couple of his former uh, slaves had, are, are in Christi a small town of Christiana. He does everything he's supposed to do according to the Fugitive Slave Act. He goes up to Philadelphia, he gets a warrant, he gets a marshal to assist, he puts together a posse, and he heads to Christiana. Well, word had gotten out, and these fugitives are at the home of Henry, um, William Parker. William Parker was a leader of a self-defense league in the area. And he was known for being tenacious and bold as a, as a self-defense leader. Um, and, he, and, and he had been a former, he had been a fugitive slave himself. He had once, he had, he had escaped from Anne Arundel County. The, um, he was, he would not release, he, he refused to back down. And the slaveholder and, and the posse refused to back down. And an altercation breaks out. The slaveholder is killed. Uh, Gorsuch is slain. Uh, his son is almost killed. He takes a shotgun blast in the side. And, it creates quite a furor in Maryland. Maryland. Marylanders are upset and angry. Well, also, part of the this, this story is that two white Quakers show up. It's, it's around the same time as the, the fighting was about to break out. And the marshal decides they must have been the ringleader because of, of the events. And, and the Quakers refused to assist. And the Fugitive safe, safe Slave Law said that they had to assist. Well, they were going to charge them with a crime, but the governor of Maryland pushes it and says, it's not just an ordinary crime. The federal government should, be should charge them with the most serious crime possible, treason. So they have a treason trial for him and a number of other people that are rounded up. And, the, um, and I'll get back to, the, to the, that trial in a moment the trial of uh, a gentleman by the name of Hanway. So from November, December 1851, there's a treason trial in Philadelphia. There are Maryland lawyers that were also involved in the trial. And the Pennsylvania lawyers and the Maryland lawyers are arguing not just over this particular incident, but the animosity between the two states over the whole issue of slave catching and kidnapping is brought out through this whole time. Maryland is arguing... There should be no interference. Even the laws of Congress doesn't matter. The, the Supreme Court says we are not to be hindered when, when we grab us, we, we, may, um, we go to recover our property. So the, um, the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania attorneys back them into a corner and said, well, are you saying then that you only have to follow the fugitive slave law um, 
as a supplement. It, it, you don't necessarily have to follow that law. You can just you don't even have to bother with the trial. And Wireless gets Maryland to admit that they had a two-sided way of looking at the law. If it was North's responsibility to make sure they followed the law exactly or risk shattering the Union. But the South, they had an option. Now, at the same time this is going on, McCreary is kidnapping two young women. Well, one's a 12-year-old girl. She is kidnapped with the help of her employer. Turns out her employer was connected with McCreary. Um, these families, their, their children would go out and work for different households because of, the, the income was needed. And um, so she, and she'd gotten in her fight with her mother at the household she was working at, so she and a snit decide to go out and look for a new employer, and she ends up with an employer who's in cahoots with uh, McCreary. So she's kidnapped early in December 1851, quietly. People don't, are not aware of the kidnapping until later. And then, in West Nottingham Township, almost at the Maryland line in C with Cecil County, Rachel Parker, age 17, she's in the kitchen working, she's employed uh, by, by Joseph Miller and his wife. She's in the kitchen working with, with Miller's wife. Thomas McCreary comes up to the door, knocks. They, they, don't, they don't know Thomas McCreary. Thomas McCreary says, I'm, can you tell me where Jesse McCurry lives? Well, Thomas McCurry knew exactly where Jesse McCurry lives. It was his brother. But it turns out, well, the Parker, uh, um, Rachel Parker also knew, the Millers knew where Jesse uh, McCurry lived because he was in the neighborhood um, or in the area. But it was a ruse because as soon as McCurry walked through the door, he grabbed Rachel by the arm and started pulling her out. Um, Mrs. Miller calls to her husband. Her husband comes running up, um, grabs um, McCreary, and uh, another man by the name of John Merritt, who's an accomplice, pulls out his gun, puts it to his head, and again threatens to shoot Miller if he interferes. And he says that Rachel's a, a runaway from Baltimore. Her and her sister had ran away. Well, that was supposed to have been in 1847 when they ran away. Rachel Parker had worked for Miller since 1844. Plus, she grew up in the community. Everybody from the day she was born knew she grew up in the community. So here's where the two events overlap. The Christiana Treason Trial, McCurry is mentioned twice. The, the Jackson, Jackson incident and also the fact that he the governor had refused to extradite him before. Um, the Maryland Attorney General expresses a one-sided interpretation of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Hanway is acquitted, saying they're not making war against the United States. The treason trial, they were overreaching. It didn't apply. Um, so it was dropped. The other cases were dropped and returned back to state courts for lesser crimes. In the meantime, McCurry has debt problems again in September 51. So in early December, he abducts the 12-year-old. And then two weeks later, he kidnaps Elizabeth's sister, 70-year-old Rachel Parker. 
McCreary accuses the two sisters of running away from a Baltimore slave owner in 47, as I mentioned. But, again, even under the Fugitive Slave Act, where it says you go before a federal judge, McCreary didn't go before a judge. He took her straight, took both of them straight across the state line and headed to Baltimore. Um, <clears throat> so Maryland and McCreary's interests merge again, but more significantly than before. Now here's what's going on. There's a high-pitched level of anger in Baltimore. Say, so how dare they? They kill a slave catcher trying to recover his own slaves. He goes into Pennsylvania. He follows the law exactly. He does exactly what he's supposed to do, and he lies dead. And they're very angry about it. Angry. And, and they're over Gorsuch's staff. And Baltimore considered any Pennsylvania abolitionists, Pennsylvania abolitionists as troublemakers, instigators of the event. Well, the people who are about to come into Baltimore to rescue Rachel are only about 20 miles away from Christiana. So in December, around the same time, December 31st and January 1st, Joseph Miller and seven friends and neighbors rushed to Baltimore. Uh, Francis Corcoran of Baltimore assists them. Rachel Parker is partially rescued. Now, what do I mean by partially rescued? She is rescued from the slave dealer. She isn't going to disappear somewhere in New Orleans. But because she's accused of being a runaway, Maryland authorities say, we've got to have proof that she's not a runaway, and they put her in prison until she has a chance to prove it. In the meantime, Joseph Miller signs a warrant to have Miller or McCreary arrested for kidnapping. So the Pennsylvanians head for the train station that day. And by the way, they'd been followed around by a rather hostile mob the whole time they were in Baltimore trying to rescue Rachel. So they head on to the train station. Miller disappears. They don't know what happened to him. His body is found the next morning near a station at Stemmer's Run. Some people said, well, it was revenge for Gorsuch. But other, he obviously isn't going to be testifying against um, McCreary either during the kidnapping trial. The kidnapping trial against McCreary is derailed by the governor, the Maryland governor, who doesn't react to the extradition request uh, for McCreary for kidnapping of the sisters, and the ex-governor. Remember I mentioned Philip Thomas, who didn't allow McCreary to be extradited, or didn't accept the extradition of McCreary. He introduces a surprise witness. Well, the surprise witness said that Miller was in, in, in on it. Well, this surprise witness, by the way, was the accomplice of McCreary at the time of the kidnapping. And he had every reason to lie because he didn't want to be tried for kidnapping himself. So he, wanted, he was trying to cloud the waters a bit. And the ex-governor evidently put him up to it in order to protect McCreary. He had protected McCreary before, and he was determined to protect McCreary again. Um, meantime, Rachel, as I've mentioned, is in prison awaiting re resolution of the issue. A petition for freedom is, is filed. She wasn't allowed to, to file it because she's accused of being a slave, so Francis Corcoran had to, to uh, file it on, in her behalf. Uh, 
Then in the spring, this is in January, 1852, in the spring, Elizabeth Parker is found. There were a group of Baltimoreans who put up the money and told the slave dealer, go find her. If it turns out, you know, you've lost the, the expenses and all, and she really was a fugitive, then we'll reimburse you. We'll put up the security. So Elizabeth is brought back to Baltimore, and she enters her, her plea is entered with Rachel's, and they decide, a decision by the state is that whatever's decided for Rachel will be decided for, for Elizabeth. The Pennsylvania legislature provided legal support for both sisters and the governor appoints lawyers. After one full year of sitting in prison, waiting for the state, the state keeps scheduling and rescheduling and, and delaying and scheduling and delaying. One full year, the trial for the plea for freedom for Rachel and Elizabeth Parker, over 60 white witnesses who had lost their friend, who had a friend murdered, who were going to a city that's very hostile, head to Baltimore to speak on behalf of these two black teenagers. Now, again, I emphasize it had to be all white. It was up to the white community because any African-Americans that would want to join them, they would not have been allowed to testify. They would not have, they would have been, and they would have ended up in jail themselves. They wouldn't have gotten any, anywhere. Um, this included, by the way, among the people testifying where it was um, Jesse McCreary, the brother of Thomas McCreary, and nephews of Thomas McCreary, who were speaking on behalf of the Parker sisters, because they knew him since the Parker sisters were toddlers. Um, and I consider, I note this as one of American history's greatest acts of compassion in the face of hostility. They were not abolitionists. They were there because Rachel and Elizabeth were members of their community and were in danger of being unjustly enslaved. And not only that, all the testimonies given made it very clear that she, from the day she, literally from the day she was born, one of the testifiers, Rachel Kimball, Rachel Kimball and Rachel Parker, it was not a coincidence that their first names were Rachel. Rachel Kimball had been the midwife when Rachel Parker was born. So she, from the day she was born, the community was able to pretty much detail what her life had been in Chester County, and that she was obviously free. In the face of overwhelming testimony from Pennsylvania witnesses, the claimants dropped the claim with conditions intended to protect McCreary and his co-conspirators. Governor Bigler requests the extradition of McCreary for kidnapping. Governor Lowe denies the request with convoluted reasoning. The real reason the governor refuses, from Maryland's point of view, allowing a Pennsylvania court to argue McCreary was a kidnapper and allowing a Pennsylvania jury to declare him guilty would undermine the South's constitutional right to unrestricted recovery of slaves in the northern states. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was for northern states to strictly obey or risk shattering the Union. Southern slaveholders and their agents, on the other hand, had the option of following that law when it was helpful or not, when it was a hindrance, when it got in the way, um, when it interfered with their constitutional right, which they put that one constitutional right above all others. 
By the way, I had the privilege in 2011, this is a marker that the state of Pennsylvania put up in 2011. I had the privilege of being asked to be one of the speakers. This is a picture, by the way, of Rachel in 1918, and this was in her obituary. Um, she lived out her life in Chester County when she returned. Um, emboldened by the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, Maryland slave catchers kidnapped Rachel and Elizabeth Parker from the Nottingham area in 1851. Rachel's employer, Joseph Miller, was murdered in a failed attempt to rescue her from Baltimore. Public outrage led Pennsylvania officials to seek the sisters' release in Maryland civil court case that secured their freedom in 1853. The forcible enslavement of two young free black women galvanized anti-slavery sentiment. So it turns out McCurry's activities were quite significant once I had finished. So do you have any questions? Yes? She was very much a member of the community. Uh, she grew up there. Uh, the McCreary's were neighbors. Jesse and, and her, matter of fact, the nephews were surprised when they found out Thomas McCreary was her uncle. Evidently, the brother didn't talk about it. They were estranged. And part of it may have been that Thomas McCreary was bitter. Um, both Jesse and Thomas were heavily in debt when, when Jesse left for Pennsylvania. The property value of Jesse, for Jesse was $4,000, and Thomas McCreary's property value was something like $285. So I think there were some other family dynamics, psychological dynamics going on. But the kid, when Jesse's children were just a couple years older than, than and Parker, well, the, the brother, there was a brother and the two sisters. They were toddlers. When, when John McCreary, one of, the, one of the sons would go fishing, Rachel and Elizabeth and James would tag along. Um, she had gone to the local school. She had gone to the church, local church. Um, people knew her. She was very much part of the community. And he, yes? Um, excuse me. Was this his full means of support, or did he have another job? He had all kinds of jobs. He was constantly falling into debt. One of the things I had access to records of the Historical Society, some court records, he was constantly being sued for debt. He took on a number of jobs. Now, here's also a rather interesting angle. In December of 39, he's declared insolvent. Two months later, well, and the trustee that's appointed for him when all his, his property's confiscated and all is the brother of the political boss of Cecil County. Two months later, McCurry is given a state job at Elkton, inspecting lumber and, and marking lumber that was coming down from the, from the Pennsylvania hinterlands and down to Susquehanna into Harvey Grace, Port Deposit, and, and that area. So he was, he, two months after being declared a debtor, he had this cushy government, he had this government job. Um, he was constantly, he had a number of, he was connected to the political machine. 
Um, he took on a number of jobs. He did mail runs, for example. He'd leave the train station from, from Elkton with the mail and go into these villages around. Matter of fact, there was a group, a posse in Pennsylvania tried arresting him one time. And he was able to fight them off um, when he was making these mail runs. Or mail runs. This is being podcasted, so when you ask the questions, if you could speak into the mic, that would be wonderful. Hello, I enjoyed your presentation. In case I forgot. I once wondered, did he go to like New Jersey, like, you know, past Philadelphia to get any slaves? I mean, did that ever occur, or was it because it was close to Philadelphia, it was kind of nearby? Um, I'm not sure. I did not see anything. There were a number of things he made. There may have been a number of activities that were never reported. These were ones that were made public because they were so outrageous. Had he gone into New Jersey, it's possible. What had happened is some of those cases I mentioned in Philadelphia of, of, of Cecil County slaveholders, um, they were coming over from New Jersey visiting in Philadelphia when they were captured, taken. So there were some New Jersey connections. Matter of fact, I, believe, I suspect, but I haven't done the full research, is that a number of fugitives, number of freedom seekers heading out of Cecil County were going through Delaware and in, into New Jersey, in southern New Jersey. Yes? Um, the uh, governor who denied the extradition of uh, McCreary, Governor Lowell, He's mentioning the uh, Maryland State song, Merle, my, my Merle. Yeah, I know. I mentioned it in the book, too, by the yeah. way. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, my question is, um, with the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, you had a lot of conflict between states, northern and southern states, uh, to try to resolve that because of the personal liberty laws that the northern states put into effect. Did the Supreme Court ever get involved with any of those um, conflicts between the states? between the northern states uh, and the southern states and their interpretation of the fugitive slave law? Well, that's where the Prig versus Pennsylvania case that I mentioned in 42, and it was a case out of, um, it was a case, it was an argument between Maryland and, and, um, and Pennsylvania. It was a case in York County out of Bal um, Harvard. There had been a, a freedom seeker out of Harvard. Well, actually, she had every right to be free if, if it hadn't been a matter of paperwork. Oh, the case is kind of involved, but the point is when, when the um, judges ruled on it, the Supreme Court ruled on it, they ruled that, uh, that there should be no interference whatsoever when a slave owner or an agent goes to, uh, to re recapture runaway property. Okay, okay, that was in 42, but, but the uh, uh, Fugitive Slave Act was in 1850, which added on that, uh, in addition to what you just said with Prig versus, versus Pennsylvania, that uh, white Northerners also had, was duty-bound to assist with the slaveholders, which was a difference there. Mm -hmm. And was that ever uh, arbitrated before the Supreme Court is, is my question. It didn't quite get there, and the, <laughs> that didn't... That, no, it didn't come up. There were a number of cases. I'd have to look at some of those myself. But there, I don't think that. Plus, what's significant here is McCreary did not go before a judge. He violated the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. And yet the federal government didn't, didn't prosecute him. 
you um, uh, tell me whether or not uh, Thomas McCreary uh, was active during the years of the Civil War, and how did he live out the rest of his life? Okay, well, the, the easy thing to follow about McCreary is that he was born around 1800. So he was 60 at the time the Civil War broke out. But he was politically connected, and then during the Civil War, the political machine he was part of got booted out for a while. Oh, and by the way, he had another government job there. Going back to another thing, he was town bailiff. Now, town bailiff meant that you were a little bit everything. You were the police force, you were the street cleaner, you were the dog catcher, and so on and so forth. And he had been, and then when they lose favor, he loses the job, and then a few years after the Civil War, he gets back into that position briefly. Yes. Yes. Yes, he was. He did whatever he could to make money, legally and illegally. Yes. How did he live out the rest of his life? Pardon me, say again. live out the rest of his life? Comfortably. Uh, no, not... And uh, I'm sorry, that was too quick of an answer. That was actually not quite it, because he's still falling back into debt. Um, it looks like, well, his, his one daughter was running a candy store, and she looked like she was taking over for the household. Um, when McCreary was a bailiff, he lost the re-election for, he had served, to, after that, break where he was no longer serving, and he went back to being a bailiff again for about two years. And then it looked like he was losing his strength and vigor. He may have been ill um, in 68. And he didn't get re-elected for bailiff in 69. His, his um, daughter seemed to be providing the main income through a candy store. Plus, her, his other daughter was married, and it looked like the, uh, her husband was now falling into the same constant stream of debt pattern that Thomas had. So I think he took over, also was helping with the household debt. And Thomas McCreary evidently was no longer able to, to function well. And he died in 70, 1870. Any other questions? Well, it was a privilege or pleasure. I enjoyed the presentation. I hope you did. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.